A spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today, you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by Kate Andrews and James Forsyth. Has the List Trust campaign had its first stumble? Today has been quite a confusing moment of new policy and then a quick U-turn. Kate, perhaps you can just catch us up to date. It's currently uh, just past 1pm. So, yeah, we've had some really fast changes. It's taken about 15 hours for the Liz Trust campaign to U-turn on a pretty big announcement that it wanted to do a robust reform of public sector pay. And the idea was that she wanted to do an overhaul of national pay bargaining and allow this to be devolved. So uh, the idea is that depending on how much it costs to live in your specific region, you may be paid more or less. This is something that Liz Truss has been looking at for a long time. Um, This is not uh, something new. It's something she's considered for a while. There are merits to discussing this. The reasons that Truss brings up are, are some of them, but I think there are more sympathetic reasons too. For example, if your local area is really lacking in certain skill sets or certain staff, you could, say, decide to increase what you're going to pay people in order to recruit them to the area. And I think everybody can relate you know, and sympathize with the idea of more focus on performance-related pay, which would reward and retain the top performers in the public sector whilst hopefully gaining more efficiencies across the board. So, you know, I, I think it's it's an argument well worth having. The, the problem is very much timing here. It is not the time, regardless of what you think about these things, even if you really want reform, to be talking t- talking about lowering the pay of new public sector employees, nurses, policemen, when we are experiencing an escalating cost of living crisis. And I think timing matters a lot. There's some phrase that I'm going to get wrong about sort of how if, you know, you're you ter- you're too early to something, then you're still wrong. And, you know, timing really matters when you're having these debates. And I, I think it's... a possibly a growing question for the Liz Truss campaign. She's talking about public sector reform. She's talking about tax cuts. I think those are wholly necessary discussions to have. But if you do these things at the wrong time, even by a few months, the unintended consequences might end up convincing the public that the problem was your reforms, not all the other elements that came together to create the problems. And I'm not sure there's enough thinking on that front from the Truss campaign at the moment, which is why we've seen this 15-hour U-turn because it became so obvious so quickly that any discussion of lowering pay right now is simply politically intolerable. James, the way I re- read the situation, correct me when I am wrong, is that Liz Truss had civil service reform in mind. Whitehall, this idea of bloated Whitehall, it's very Jacob Rees-Mogg idea of civil servants needing to take a pay cut, except the number that she gave for £11 billion of savings would include these other people, you know, police, nurses, who are politically much more dangerous to cut their pay for. Is that what happened here, that she got the wrong number, but really meant civil service reform? No, I think by the end of the press release, they said that if this was all rolled out across the public sector this is this is what it would save um, that does seem like a pretty own goal then uh i think the odd thing about this is sometimes when you have a policy that comes out so for example think of theresa may and uh the dementia tax you know, there is a demand for politicians to have a policy on social care and theresa may and nick timothy went away and looked at the question and the policy that they came up with 
then went down very badly with the public. I think the slightly surprising thing about this policy is I don't think there was a clamour in this leadership contest for details of a policy on regional public sector pay. And I think it's one of those things. I think that I think Kate is right about this. It's one of these ideas that can only be discussed at a time when you know a rising tide is lifting all boats. And, and this is not a time with inflation as high as it is and, and the expectation it will stay high for quite a while that, that a rising tide is lifting all boats. And so it, I think it was an odd policy to put out in the week when the ballots are going out, especially when they had a, a Penny Morden endorsement, which is obviously a, a big boost to their campaign to go with as well. So I, I am surprised by the decision to go with the policy. I mean, I've known Rishi Sunak a long time. I think there is a question that this will now prompt, which you can see from some Tory MPs are, are, are saying kind of semi-publicly on Twitter. Oh, and we should say that these are Tory MPs who tend to be supporting Rishi Sunak, which is, you know, what's the political judgment in pushing this policy when you consider the new electoral coalition that the Tories are trying to hold together? I think because I think there are two things with this. One, there is the kind of Ben Houchen problem, which is, hang on a second, the idea of getting these civil service jobs out of London wasn't to to get them and then have people would, you know, get paid a lot less. It was about bringing well-paying jobs to these areas. And then I think the second problem is, is, is a rural services point, which is, although, for example, teachers in relative terms are paid less in London than they are in the rest of the country, in a modern world where often both people and a couple work, you know, you can pretty much guarantee that your partner will be able to do their job in London. If you are going to teach in a rural school somewhere, it is less certain that your partner would be able to do the job that they would like to do in that in that place. And so I mean, one of the arguments that you hear from some rural Tory MPs is, look, it is hard recruiting staff for some of these jobs in our area. If you were to then say well, it costs less to live here, so we'll pay you less, that problem would be compounded. Now, you could argue that the real solution to this is to let individual schools and individual hospital trusts negotiate their own pay with people. But I mean, I mean, I mean regional pay boards is, is, a, is a problematic policy. Kate, um, James's comparison to dementia tax makes me wonder if, I mean, there, at the time at which the dementia tax was introduced, there were some analysts who said, well, you know, this kind of makes sense from policy's perspective, even if it's not politically popular. Could a regional pay pegging be a similar kind of policy where it kind of makes sense from a policy perspective, but just not politically savoury? By which I mean, you know, this trust says that this is so that private sector jobs in these areas could be more appealing. And you can see how she arrives at that from a free market perspective. I think there are a lot of really good reasons to question national pay bargaining, not simply because it's inefficient, but also because I don't think it's great for the individuals often working in the public sector. If you're doing a fantastic job and you do want that performance related pay for, you know, when we talk about the benefits of devolution, if your area is is struggling from a lack of skill or staff, you want to do everything you can to recruit people to your area, you should be allowed to do so. To James's point about political judgment, I think that's exactly what we're lacking here. There are lots of great policies that are going to be difficult to talk about during an escalating cost of living crisis. And it's worth pointing out that like, all the factors are working against having this conversation right now. Usually when you have an economic downturn, nor- normal economic downturns, 
public sector pay is still somewhat up for discussion because the argument is, well, look, those jobs are secure, whereas the private sector in a recession is the one that's really going to take the hit. So we can still talk about this. With the labor market as tight as it is right now, record high job vacancies, it's very difficult to make the argument that the public sector is really that much more secure than the private sector because there are a lot of jobs going right now. Also, when we look at pay raises, the average worker, their pay raise isn't just below inflation. It's well below inflation. And so I think, again, there are a lot of merits to what she might want to discuss. But when people are genuinely fearful that they are not going to be able to pay their bills this winter because they are rising so rapidly, and when they feel in real terms like their wages are falling, this is not the moment to have that political discussion, even if you've got good points to make, and even if in the medium term, the reforms would would make people better off and and make local areas better off. This isn't the time to have it. So it, it really brings up a lot of a lot of questions of political judgment and also perhaps the the trust campaign just becoming slightly too relaxed. I mean, she has been notably ahead in the polls so far and it could, I suppose, on the surface really seem like red meat policy to say, you know, I'm going to gut and reform the public sector. But actually in this moment, when you break it down, Mm. what she's proposing is going to freak a lot of people out. Mm. And James, one other thing that we're hearing about today is BP's giant profits from April to June this year. Uh, today they've announced that they had £7 billion in profit, which is a record. What do you make of it? We've talked about giant uh, profits from energy companies on this podcast before. I mean, there is there is a clear political problem, which is we're, we're, the, the, there is now analysis out suggesting that the energy price gap is going to peak at very close to £4,000, not in October, but slightly later on. But... And so people will really struggle to pay their energy bills. And, th- and that is going to go really quite far up the income scale with this fear about paying your energy bills. At the same time, you've got the, the big energy companies making these huge profits. You had Shell the other week. You've had BP this week. And I mean, all of those issues like executive pay, all of these things will get lumped together. Now, I think that, you know, I think when the profits are this large, I mean, again, it's a... a, a a dividing line in this leadership contest, which is, you know, Richard Sunak did do a windfall tax saying that that would help to pay for some of the support for households. That obviously was, is not the kind of purest free market solution to the problem. I think it's a kind of pragmatic political response to the situation. And I think that we will get in, uh, I think these arguments are going to kind of carry on happening because I think it is very, very hard to see how you come to October and, you know, this price cap rise will be announced in August. And when you look at what the candidates are proposing in terms of of policy, I struggle to think there will not need to be a more direct intervention to help out households. And the question then becomes, you know, how do you pay for that? And I think there's a lot of talk in this contest about headroom, right? I think a lot of the headroom is going to end up going on a support package on energy bills. I I kind of struggle to see how it does not. I think we also, the thing that I think is alarming at the moment is it does seem like that, uh, I mean, in a reminder of how expectations have changed, there was, there was a lot of talk about getting Ofgem to move to a quarterly update to the price cap rather than six monthly. The idea that would bring bills down for consumers quicker. It now appears, and obviously things can change between now and, and January, it now appears like this is actually going to end up raising prices for consumers quicker because of the energy complexities of, of the situation. And I think if you look at this, it, it is almost, 
almost a perfect storm is coming when it comes to energy. You've got Russia determined to use its energy weapon uh, and causing particular problems for, for, for Germany, Europe's largest economy. You've got a situation where half of France's nuclear fleet is offline, which is basically meaning that a country that normally has a, has a lot of energy security does not in the same way. There is a real problem of how you get pipeline gas that lands in Spain across the rest of a continent, right, which doesn't seem to be an obvious solution to this. So all of these factors are coming together. And I think you also look at the kind of levels of geopolitical volatility. Um, at the moment, you know, Nancy Pelosi's plane is currently flying to Taiwan. And I think, you know, it's quite clear that we can expect some kind of response from Beijing to that. I mean, I don't mean, I don't mean by that an invasion. But you know, I mean, there, there's talk already of, um, of cyber attacks on the Taiwanese government. I think we can expect some kind of plane incursions into Taiwan's air defense zone, all these things. And I think that this is just a reminder. I don't quite see where the the a two things. One is I think energy prices are going to remain high for the foreseeable future, and two I think that the the the, the geopolitical backdrop will cause sufficient instability that investment decisions and the like are going to get put off as people say, well, hang on a second, let's wait and see what happens here. They'll, so you mean those profits are not going to be reinvested in the short term? I, I think this is the, one of the challenges. I also think one of the other challenges is that the amazing story the other day about how much the UK paid to get some power from Belgium. Part of the problem is, is, is this, this is the least sexy topic imaginable, but like the grid maintenance in the UK means that there is a struggle to get, you know, energy from renewables being created off the coast of Scotland down through the grid into London. So I think all of these problems are are coming together. And I think there is a there is a fraughtness here, not to take everyone back to COVID. But you know, there are moments when essential things are in short supply, when countries essentially the, the borders reassert themselves countries basically say we, we won't sell you know, we won't ship you ppe or we won't ship you vaccines or whatever and i think that um, at the moment i mean there is a danger in, in europe given how interconnected the energy market is that you could see some actions like that taking place this winter if if prices are very very high and there's just a, a finite amount of supply i think it is it is astonishing that that non that non-scaremongery people are genuinely talking about blackouts here. Germany, uh, you know, is talking about creating these heat havens, you know, places like essentially like a feedback, food bank where people can go and sit in the warmth because it's going to be so expensive for people to heat their houses. I mean, I, I think this is, I, I think that we, this is one of these things that, that we, sometimes the thing, is, the problem coming towards you is hiding in such plain sight that we don't kind of fully grasp but i think we, we we live in we live in a society where we have just just where kind of energy usage and, and the fact that you know the cost of it you know is a going up astronomically but also just the availability of it we have always assumed was a kind of given and and it might not be this winter kate i know you're ideologically opposed to windfall taxes very um, much so <laughs> Given the dire situation that James has just cheerfully painted, do you think that now is a ex- uh, moment to make an exception to that, to go further with the taxations of these giant profits in order to help people get past this winter? I really still don't want a windfall tax. I think it's, I think it sets an extremely dangerous precedent about 
who money actually belongs to. It, it, it creates this idea, as do wealth taxes, that the government's just kind of letting you borrow that money and actually can come along and reclaim it at any time. And I'm, I'm very hesitant to call for any kind of windfall tax. I would say that CEOs right now of big businesses need to be savvy. During my think tank years, I would come out and defend fat cat CEO pay. (laughs) There's always in the first week of January, you know, the the CEO has earned what the average worker will earn over the whole whole year. And I I love those debates. I I really believed in the argument that uh, for these multinational companies that are making life better for their employees and for the consumer that have actually very volatile jobs, don't tend to stay in them for very long, there's a real defense of, of fat cat pay. Uh, and I, I still believe that. But the, the important points there, you know, are, are that things need to be going well in order to justify that pay. And, and these are bad times. And it might not be because the CEO themselves have made bad decisions, but these are very bad times. And they need to be savvy and thoughtful about the circumstances they're in. And it would be pretty ridiculous to be giving yourself a massive bonus, huge pay raise at a time where your employees and your customers aren't sure that they can pay their bills. And we got into a very strange circumstance this spring where you had CEOs of these oil and gas companies going on television, on the radio, almost like egging the chancellor on, bring on the windfall tax, you know, because they were playing a PR battle like, oh, this isn't our fault. If if the government wants to take our money, they can. And then, of course, an, a windfall tax was implemented and you had companies like BP saying, we're actually going to reconsider where we invest. <laughs> don't don't play that. Don't don't test this. Don't play that game. Private companies can make the right decisions without government interference to help their customers, to support their customers, to show some level of solidarity in in, in these darker times, in these tough times. And, you know, don't egg on the government to come in and intervene. Reinvest. Do what you can for your customers before anybody asks you to. That is the way to get through this, I think. And don't be giving yourself this monumental payout at a time, you know, if you really want to fight the PR battle, it doesn't require asking the government to intervene. You can do what you need to do in order to sort that out. I think it goes further than executive pay. I think there's a real case, given how severe the cost of living crisis is going to be, that those people, those firms that supply the basics of life, whether that be energy or food, should essentially strip their profit margins back, given the circumstances that, that, that consumers are facing. I don't disagree, James. The only um, thing I would say to that, though, is, you know, when we're talking about profit margins and shareholder payouts, you know, a lot of those are pension pots. I, 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 I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not claiming that this is all a, a simplistic, you know... No, sure. Just, there's no cost to doing this, right? Yeah. I, I, the only point I'm making, and I don't disagree with you, is the only point I'm making is that sometimes when we talk about shareholders, people just think of like, you know, very, very rich people sitting on no. their billions, and that often isn't the case. I'm, I'm not suggesting these people are diving into their money, you know, in a... In a, a, a but <laughs> I, I, I think this, there is a kind of issue coming up now, which is... Two, two reasons why I think they should do it. One is a kind of self-interested argument. I think that, you know, for supermarkets, for example, that, that keep their their prices down, even at the cost of, of running at a smaller profit margin than they normally do, will, I think, be rewarded by customer loyalty. The second thing, I think, is, and again, maybe maybe this is the problem of recording the uh, podcast before I eat my lunch, so I'd be too apocalyptic. <laughs> um, no. The second thing I think is, I think that you. I think if you see at the same time that people are struggling, big share buyback programs and the like, 
I think that you could move politics in a in a way that is that no one on the centre right who believes in the free market should like, because I think that you could well see a big rise in kind of left wing economic populism as people say, well, hang on a second, you know, I, I can't pay my energy bill, but these companies. They've got so much money, you know, they, they talk about themselves as cash machines and they're just buying back stock because, you know, because they don't know what to do with it. Well, how is that fair? I think that I think there is a there is a you know, that you should be aware that 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 there are risks to companies not realizing that their actions have an influence on on, on broader policy and political debates. Kate and James, I'm sure we can be here for much, much longer debating fat cat pay and windfall taxes. Um, But we'll have to wrap it up there. Thanks for joining me and thank you for listening.